welcome to the Defender Podcast, a resource to help mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm your host, Herbie Newell. It's Wednesday, May 11th, 2022, and Dr. Rick and I are coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. Well, today, friends, we are releasing this interview that Dr. Rick and I had with Allison Centifante, and we had actually planned for this interview to be released in April, but because of some other podcasts that came through our two-part series with the Chapmans, uh, this interview actually got delayed, but I believe in God's sovereignty and providence. It got dropped exactly when it needed to get dropped, right after last week's leak of the Supreme Court decision, which we hope and pray will be the final decision at the Supreme Court. And so what you're gonna hear in this interview is Dr. Rick and I discussing with Allison uh, the decision, the Dobbs case, the future of what America could look like in a post-Roe world. And so knowing that We had this leak last week that there is at least a greater opportunity and a greater chance for us to truly be living in a post-Roe world. We're very excited that you get to hear this interview that Dr. Rick and I had with Allison Sintinfante. Really quick, Allison is the founder of Sintinfante Strategies. Uh, She is, it's a consulting firm and a child advocacy firm. Um, She's an innovator and an in-demand public speaker, activist, and writer with over 10 years of experience speaking on abortion, marriage, human dignity, and religious freedom. Sintamante has been featured on Fox News, ABC, NPR, the Christian Broadcasting Network, and other national and international media outlets. Her work and expert perspective has been published in Yahoo News, Business Insider, BuzzFeed, National Review Online, Fox News, World Magazine, Red Alert Politics, and The Federalist. Allison most recently served as Director of External Affairs at Live Action, a nonprofit organization with the largest digital footprint in the global pro-life movement. And prior to that, Allison served as Director of Alliance Relations at Alliance Defending Freedom, a global organization with the largest digital footprint, uh, or or, a legal organization committed to protecting religious freedom, free speech, marriage, family, paternal rights, and the safety of life. She started her work in Washington, D.C. as Communications Director at Concerned Women for America, the nation's largest public policy women's organization. Allison was named to Red Alert Politics 30 Under 30 and Christianity Today's Reader's Choice 33 Under 33. You can find Allison online or on social media, and we're so grateful to have Allison join us to talk about what a post-Roe world might look like. But before we hear from Dr. Rick and Allison, I want to remind you about Vessels of Hope. Vessels of Hope is a ministry to orphan and vulnerable children um, that actually relies upon monthly donors and the body of Christ. So this is people who give of their time, their knowledge, and their resources on a monthly basis. It's our faithful community of monthly donors. We want to make sure that our monthly donors feel connected, have opportunities to have inside information and feel truly like they are catered and cared for. So if you'd like to know how you can make an impactful investment in the lives of orphaned and vulnerable children, but also to be part of a community uh, called Vessels of Hope, you can visit our website at lifelinechild.org backslash monthly dash giving. Again, that's lifelinechild.org backslash monthly dash giving, or you can always see our show notes for a link that will show you how you can become a part of this impactful group.
Well, as it is for all of the podcasts, this is everyone's favorite part of the podcast where I get to bring on the venerable Dr. Rick, um, everybody's favorite big shot, the one who uh, signs books and authors books and and even recently has been on a worldwide media tour. Uh, Dr. Rick, we, uh, we're both being outshone today, obviously, because we have uh, Allison Sintafonte on, who is uh, probably, uh, maybe not for most people, a household name, but they know of her work and they've seen her. And brother, I think you would agree that in a lot of ways, she's done more for the pro-life movement in the last 10 years than, than a lot of other people. Uh, and we're just grateful to have her on. Absolutely. A little intimidated today, you know, kind of, kind of a little nervous. Um, Allison's quite a, you know, she's quite an intimidating presence. We, we got the opportunity. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Like um, we, we got the opportunity to spend some time a few weeks ago and really kind of dig in and talk ministry and get to know each other. And uh, Allison, it's, it's just a pleasure to have you on the Defender podcast, but also um, to be part of the Lifeline team. We're really enjoying getting to work with you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Dr. Rick, and thank you, Herbie. It's been great. Thanks for taking this, you know, Eastern, this New Jersey girl under your wing in the South and figuring out how to continue to save lives and uh, talk well of the fight for life and keep the movement energized. So we are coming up on a big spring and it's really, really crucial uh, to have you guys and to keep the movement educated and encouraged and equipped because gosh, there's just so much um, happening right now. Um, that excites me being in the movement for so long and also just bringing life into the world and realizing, you know, what a blessing it is um, to have kids and figure out how to raise them well. And I want to create a better place for our kids um, here and across the world. And I know you guys share that same vision. So it's been a blessing. Yeah, for sure. You know, this really is a pivotal time, I think, in the uh, in in the pro life movement, and and we're we're living in days that uh, that we prayed for for a long time, and and are expectantly kind of looking toward the you know the immediate future of um, of of what you know what might happen uh, this summer with uh, with the Dobbs case and and the resulting um, impact on abortion. And and the you know at least to see perhaps the the greatest limiting of abortion that we've seen in uh, in the last you know last fifty years and 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 so maybe that's the place to start a, l- a little bit, um, Allison and and what um, I think first of all what states because to help our, our listeners be able to get a little bit of a picture of nationally what's happening because. Yes, there's this this important decision that's before the Supreme Court, but there there's a lot of legislation and and there've been a lot of things that have been going on across the US for a number of years now in order to prepare for uh, the potential of this moment. And and so maybe start out with what are the states that are best positioned right now to to be ready to respond to the Supreme Court giving an opening to states being able to, to limit abortion? Yeah, great question. And let's let's just back up for a second, because I think it's neat to think of this moment in history from a macro perspective, from realizing that there has been a great fight for human rights threaded into our wiring 
as Americans and as Christians, particularly, this is a continuation of the fight for acknowledging human rights as God has given them. So think back to, you know, the great civil rights movement and the fight for equality for people who are uh, black and who were treated differently under the law simply because they were black. Um, They were discriminated against, treated terribly, um, exploited. That was a great fight and it took time um, to get equal protection under the law for black Americans. Um, you can go before that and even think of, you know, the Wilberforces of the, of the time and they were fighting for just human rights. And, you know, Wilberforce didn't even get to live to see the end of slavery. And he had to fight and, and stay persistent and winsome and persuasive. And so I just always like to remind, especially, you know, people my age and younger as the pro-life movement is getting younger and younger because they they're waking up and they can see so much and we're, you know, doing such a good job educating um, that this isn't just one of many issues. This is paramount to so much good. And also we threaten a lot of bad in the world when we push back against people who want to end the lives of children innocent children. And so I'll just frame it that way. You know, the anticipation of the movement right now is built because people have been fighting for decades. And you guys know this, you've been a part of that fight. We stand on the shoulders of those who went before us and said, okay, Roe v. Wade, law of the land, still going to open a pregnancy resource center. I'm still going to make sure that I speak out against abortion. I'm not stopping this. I'm going to make sure the media talks about it. I'm going to get creative. Um, so that, that's kind of the, the macro setting we're in right now as we're looking to the Supreme Court to hopefully do the right thing and say, look, Roe v. Wade was bad law. And we are going to return this decision back to the state. Now, do I, do I kind of wish the Supreme Court just wrote a personhood amendment and just said, listen, you get human rights at the point of conception? Yes. And there's like a very slim chance they do that. <laughs> but all, most legal scholars agree that they will likely look at Roe v. Wade. They will look at what the uh, Mississippi Attorney General Lynn Finch presented in terms of how much science has changed, how much the world has changed, um, and say, look, states can decide, leave us out of it. Some states, like the great state of Alabama, we've got Texas, um, you can think of other states that have already put into place protections for children if Roe v. Wade is overturned and reversed. Texas, Alabama, I said, Oklahoma, uh, Mississippi, Arizona, Michigan, South Carolina, they'll be able to protect life once Roe is overturned, except in some rare circumstances. And a few of them, they might have a life of the mother exception or something like that. Um, But other states, New York, you guys can think, remember when Cuomo lit up the uh, World Trade Center was it the World Trade Center, or the Empire State Building in pink to celebrate the human rights amendment that allows for abortion through all nine months. So terrible. Um, my home state of New Jersey, Vermont, Illinois, uh, Nevada, these places have said even if Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion will still be legal in most circumstances. So it's really important for us as pro-lifers to know what's gonna happen in our state. And um, there's a great resource. So you don't have to just rewind and listen and see if I listed your state. Uh, The Family Policy Alliance has put together this map 
that shows on a state-by-state basis what will happen. It's called afterrow.com. And I was just looking at it this morning uh, to see, you know, what states are most likely and least likely to protect children. And it's great. Um, So afterrow.com, make sure you know what's going to happen when the Supreme Court decides and releases its decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health. That's the the case we're looking at. And Allison, I think one of the things that even as we talk about these states and, you know, more conservative states like Texas, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, uh, obviously Mississippi, because that's the Dobbs case that that's before the Supreme Court right now. We know they have uh, laws on the books to limit or to completely uh, you know, abolish abortion in their states. But like you said, you, you take New York, Vermont, New Jersey, California, some of these states have, will have even more oppressive uh, abortion laws on the books than, than Roe was even allowing. <clears throat> but not just looking at laws, at the heart of the issue, the pro-abortion side continually makes this a, a women's health care issue. Uh, it's continually pushed down uh, our throats that this is a woman's right to choose and that to stand up against abortion and to truly be a proponent for life. And, and, and we would all agree, not just the life of a child, but the life of a mother uh, in her human flourishing and, and in her life it is, is, is not pro-woman. You, about a month ago, wrote an incredible um, article called If Roe is Overturned, Children, Women, and Science Will Be Respected Once Again. Uh, yeah. One, it was an excellent article. But two, one of the things I loved about it is that it was totally flying in the face of all the talking points of the pro-abortion movement. How do we reclaim the life uh, side as pro-woman? How do we reclaim the life side truly, as your article said, as, as as a movement that is respecting children, women, and science? Yeah, thanks. It's so disrespectful to tell a woman the only chance to tell me the only chance I have at success in the workplace uh, is to end the life of my child. To go and pay a stranger to end the life of my child. That is not empowering. That is not, that is not anything to me that is, you can do this. God has a purpose, you know, and I just wanted to push back. I did write in that article that if Roe v. Wade's overturned, it will renew the respect that women deserve. And I think back to this, I I think back to this moment in the women's rights movement where the group National Organization for Women was kind of forming in the seventies and they were figuring out what they were going to stand for. And there was a lot to fight for. I mean, women couldn't even take out credit, credit cards. Uh, There were ads in the paper at the time about, you know, jobs for men and jobs for women. And the women's ones were like airline stewardess. Uh, if you gain 10 pounds or turn 30, you're done. Like whatever happens first. I mean, there was a lot for women to say, look, that's wrong. And I'm glad they started to push back on that. You know, think of someone even like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was one of nine, I think one of nine women in law school at the time of her becoming a Supreme Court justice. Uh, and now there's more girls in law school than boys. Like we have come a long way. A fight needed to happen. But there was a pivotal moment at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C., where women of faith 
came together and said, look, we will join you in this fight for women's rights, voting rights, you know, housing, employment rights, but we're not partnering with you on abortion. And this fight went on and on. And Betty Friedan, who was a big pro-abortion woman, was hearing from both sides. She really wasn't very pro-abortion. But at the end of the day, very pro-abortion men, Guttmacher um, and Larry Nader, not Larry Nader, excuse me, Guttmacher and another man, I'll pull his name, really spoke into her and pushed her to become more pro-abortion. And the women of faith walked out and they said, we can't be a part of this. And so I always wonder, Herbie, if it had gone the other way and if Betty Friedan had stood to what we think she really wanted at the beginning, which was a world where we can support women as women, what would our workplaces look like? I mean, what would our workplaces look like for both moms and dads? You have very progressive companies now like Patagonia and REI and others setting up daycares in their offices because they realize, oh, newsflash, we have parents. We want to we wanna keep parents on staff. We don't want to get rid of them. So yeah, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, I think we'll get to have these good conversations about what it looks like to support women as moms, to support men as dads, as families, the importance that brings to a workplace and that your ultimate productivity is not just in the workplace. You know, it's good for people to have hearts and to care about those who are more dependent than them. So I think it will take pro-life leaders making clear that it is valuable to be a woman, uh, that it is important to honor bringing life into the world. And that's men and women alike. And you guys do that so great at Lifeline. There's so many in the movement who are doing that well. But I always point out to girls, you know, younger than me, that, hey, one side of this is going to tell you that if you get pregnant, you're in a dark spot, you're alone, it's scary, and you've got to make a forever long choice. And there's another side who will say, you can do this. I've got you. Women, countless women have done this before you. You're not alone. You'll be supported. And you'll potentially bring another female life into the world. I think that's another part that's lost in this women's rights movement is these are little women that are being targeted in the womb, sometimes more than, than the boys. Abortion is a global problem. You guys know this. And in certain places, being a female, the words, it's a girl, it's a death sentence for these little girls in the womb because they're not valued. So the real human rights, the real female uh, empowerment is to say, we're going to protect all women, including those in the womb. You know, Allison, we've talked a little bit about um, what likely stands before us in the Dobbs case. And I think we've internally we've talked about it a little bit in terms of the same way that we sometimes talk about adoption when we're talking to families mm -hmm. about about, you know, moving into uh, adoption. And, and it's it's the fact that sometimes adoptive families have an illusion that having a child placed in their home is the end of the process and it's the end of the journey but it's really the beginning um like the 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 real the real work and the real life starts when a child comes home and i i think that's a that's a pretty good metaphor right now for where we are that that truly this is not uh we're not looking at the end we're looking at the beginning and in seeing something that is um 
that, that legally may change the landscape in our country, but it opens the door for work to be done. It, it doesn't, it doesn't really, you know, end our work. And, and so for those people that are out there today, that are, that are in churches where um, life is valued and they're in communities where this is a, this is a common, you know, conversation, like what, what would your counsel be to, what do we need to prepare ourselves to be doing today and, and prepare ourselves to, to be doing in the future um, as a result of the opportunity for uh, this decision to return back to the states and, and for mm-hmm. states to have an opportunity to, to define uh, how to protect life? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something I think about a lot because um, I have a unique, I have a unique experience where I've been working in the pro-life movement for a decade at this very big national level. Um, God was <laughs> quick uh, to just push me into DC and the craziness there and the federal legislation. And um, I'm grateful for that time, but I was always so busy that I couldn't, I felt like I didn't have time for that kind of local like activism and serving. Right. So you guys, we all know how hard work is add on to it. The DC hustle grind. It's, it's crazy. Um, it's why a lot of them are, are, uh, are not the best people <laughs> after decades of being there. But now I feel like I've, I've transitioned into a place where I see that that local touch is what will change lives most quickly. And it will, it's also what's going to keep me engaged in the fight and soft and sensitive to what we're up against and also what women are dealing with and men. So a couple of things to answer your question. It, for every pro-life person that's listening, which I'm assuming if you're listening, you already are, you know, you know about Lifeline, you know about these organizations. We want to support them at a national level, 100%, um, with prayer, finances, volunteering, whatever you can do. Work for them if you can. But let's go down to the fact that we have in our backyards abortion facilities that every day are seeing women and men and misinforming them on their options, not talking about adoption, not talking about parenting and the reality, not even telling them sometimes, guys, how far along they truly are. I was just reading an article this morning about um, a woman who went in and was told she was you know, probably six weeks pregnant, and uh, she took the abortion pill and delivered a 22-week-old child. I mean, this is because she was seen by a midwife. Uh, not anyone with medical background there and, and they were wrong. Um, and she's suing because of that. So I will say, I encourage everyone, whether you're just new to the movement or in this for decades, make sure you take a Saturday this year, this month, go down to your local abortion facility and just be present and prayerful. There is nothing that gets my heart beating faster than seeing a young man pull in quickly into the Planned Parenthood driveway. A girl gets out, he parks, she rushes in and you realize you are standing on the front line of a big moment in somebody's life. Both these two people and that that little child and that mom. And to see the pro-life movement has come so far where now we have, you know, sidewalk advocates for life. We have amazing people doing great work. 
go to the guy. Hey, what's going on? We just broke up. I don't know what to do. She's pregnant. Okay, let's talk about it. Like, and you've got the men stepping in to support this young man. And the girls, you know, when she comes out, this young boyfriend or ex-boyfriend, whatever, says, Hey, you should maybe we should get an ultrasound on that that van right there. You know, why don't we get an ultrasound and see? And now she's getting counseling. Like, guys, time will fly, your heart will be inspired. You're fighting for a life in that moment. And so I just I think that being at an abortion clinic has gotten a bad rap. I used to think only the weirdos did it, you know, the activist fringe and um, th- they do, some of them do it wrong. And, and I will say that, but I, that should encourage us to go do it right. That should encourage us to go be a loving presence. And I just think that that is going to keep your heart soft to how it's really about the one. So that's one thing I think you can do. Number two, I think it's going to be up to us to take things individually. What are you doing as a pro-life person individually? Maybe that's getting involved with a local group that's supporting um, moms in in need, your pregnancy center, an embrace grace group or something like that. It might also look like you being willing to take a larger step into taking care of children who are finding themselves because of different circumstances in a hard spot. I mean, what you guys are doing with Lifeline is huge. Um, Foster care, adoption services, taking care of an expected mom, making clear to those people in your community that are leading that you want to help. I get it. We're all busy. You might not be ready for full, the full jump in, right? (laughs) But I know that God makes clear that he blesses each step. And so like for me right now, it's simply making food for girls that are in unplanned pregnancies that are meeting every Tuesday night here in Huntsville. And I just make sure that they have food, a warm meal for them and their babies and their belly. I'm not leading the group. I can't do it all, but I can be a part of it. And so I would, I would challenge people to think, what can I do to support people in my community already kind of leading? Maybe you do have the time. Maybe you are retired and you have time. Go start, start what you think needs to be done. Um, and lastly, I would just say, pray about your personality type um, and think about what you would enjoy doing. Some people would shudder, as you guys know, at the thought of door knocking for a pro-life candidate, right? With a group like SBA list. The idea of walking up and placing a leaflet terrifies them. That's fine. Other people, that would be exciting to kind of get in those conversations. Um, so maybe that's not for you. That's okay. But there is a place for everyone in the movement to get plugged in. In my dream world, maybe I'll make it one day. There's like a personality test that you take and you can see where you would fit in. Um, Cause we all love those these days, but there's a place for you. I would just pray about making it more personal, less. I mean, it is political and that's important. We need our laws to reflect reality, but they only matter if we're ready to step into the gap. And I know so many are working hard. So find that person. You're not alone. Be brave in speaking up. Um, I have found that when I speak up about life on any, in any time, even in person, in a, uh, you know, a cautiously careful, thoughtful way, you will find common ground with people um, and, and find that you're not alone because there are more pro-lifers out there. There are millions. And I think we just need to join together. You know, Allison, one of the things that you bring to the pro-life movement and one of the contributions, great contributions that, that I don't think many even realize is 
really just even your marketing background, your your background for PR and your background to really be able to to put words to the movement that really help describe the movement. You know, one of the things I think about uh, when we think of life is actually, I, I go back to Isaiah chapter 50 uh, and Isaiah, uh, or not Isaiah chapter 50, Isaiah chapter five, verse 20. And, and Isaiah says, you know, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. But what woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And I think of that verse because for so long, this debate over abortion has been the pro-abortion side really calling evil good and good evil. And by by saying a, a human flourishing, a pro-life is evil and it's, you know, anti-woman and it's anti-science. And yet uh, an abortion, which stops a life, which doesn't help a woman, is is painted in this colloquial, uh, sweet defense type mechanism language, mm-hmm. uh, e- even to the, the point that we all know that these women who we are ministering to, who are the ladies that like you just described or with a boyfriend or an ex-boyfriend who are being dropped off at Planned Parenthood, they're going in that Planned Parenthood and they may be pregnant, but they have so many other issues that are going on in their lives. And the truth of the matter is all Planned Parenthood or abortion clinic is going to do is kill the life inside of them, but it's not going to address the holistic needs of that woman who's walking into their center. Their answer is onefold. Let us take the life of a child, not let's let's address what's really going on in your life. I I think it is important that as the pro-life movement, we really do think about the words that we use and help people understand that that we're about human flourishing woman and child and families, not just, uh, not just a, a political, a political ideology. How, how, why, and how are words so important to this movement? Yeah. Great question. The hijacking of language has been, I think one of the hardest things to address because the other side is so well-funded in getting their message out. And it kills me because we we fund that. You know, our taxpayer dollars do get directed to groups like Planned Parenthood who have a multi-million dollar marketing budget. And they sit around and they think of what clever, glossy campaign they can run to either create a, a customer by making you more sexually promiscuous or to convince you that abortion is okay because you come first. And we wouldn't want you to have to do anything that's hard. Like, you know, maybe not have sex or to raise the the child or, you know, to bring to term this child that you created. Um, I think of words that are solely adopted on the left, inclusion, inclusion, tolerance, uh, compassion, equality, equity. They've hijacked these terms that if you just scrape a little bit of dust off of them, they're ours. What's more tolerant, inclusive, compassionate than to say, I will speak up for the innocent, for the exploited, for this per- little tiny person who has no advocate? It's tolerant. I can tolerate a pregnant woman in my workforce. I can, I can include her. I can include women in all I'm doing. 
I can, I can handle all of these, um, you know, concerns that come up, but it's, it's bizarre how the left has stolen that language. And so I always welcome the pro-life movement to take it back. I mean, we are trying to issue equality. We are trying to say you're equal under the law because you are a unique human being with unique DNA at the moment of conception. And I don't get to end your life for my convenience. And so I think we will, if we do that, Kirby, find interesting bedfellows. Like I'm even seeing that a little bit online where there's now a growing movement of pro-lifers who are not believers. They are not in church. They are not doing this. They are openly agnostic, atheist, secular. And I, you know, I do hope that changes. I hope through their, um, you know, their exploration of the pro-life movement and its messengers, they do come to faith. But I think it's powerful to point out that they are seeing this simply from a scientific prenatal development, you know, equality movement, um, anti-violence, anti-discrimination. And um, I love them for that because they're, they're, they're drawing people in that, um, you know, in a different way than I or you will. And I think, and I've seen how God can use just this issue of abortion to bring people to acknowledge, Hey, I did that. I created that child. So thanks. I'm glad you're on board. Um, And I look forward to that for them, but there is a growing movement of young people who are waking up not only to just how um, cruel this is and corrupt, but also that there's money behind their exploitation. I found that in talking to um, the next generation and even women, my own age and older who have gone through an abortion they realized that there was no concern for them or their health. When they walked in, the abortion facility saw the money that could be made from an abortion. And they saw the money that could potentially be made on the second side of that, which is a lot of these groups and entities have relationships with um, researchers who take the, the, sadly, the baby body parts and, and then partner with University of Pittsburgh or uh, University of California, San Francisco to experiment. They saw two price tags. There is no price tag for a woman that chooses life. When a woman walks into a pregnancy research center, we're like, all right, we might have to spend some money here, right? We are going to give diapers. We're going to give our time and our talent and our prayers, and we're going to make dinner, all of these things. We are actually spending money to support a woman, whereas the pro-abortion movement only sees the money they can make when a pregnant woman walks in. And that's why if you walk into an abortion facility, the, uh, the statistic is like you're between 94 and 97% likely to choose to abort because that's the way they will, they will guide you. Um, so making sure we take that language back and just educate on what abortion is, even just the word, guys. <laughs> it's shocking. If you ask people what an abortion is, they don't know. Uh, it's just thrown around. It's a euphemism. I actually did this in Times Square where I walked up to people nervously and I said, hey, uh, you know, I'm working on a project on reproductive health. Can I ask you a few questions? Just get you on camera. Sure. I said, you know, um, describe to me what an abortion is. Do you know what an abortion is? And they're like, well, I think it just disappears. A baby just goes away. Okay. And then I showed them on an iPad with their headphones um, an abortion procedure animated. It's a medical animation. And I thought, guys, that they would like throw the headphones off, maybe like throw the iPad down, curse at me, run off. Not one single person paused the video. Everybody finished the three minute long video, 
And I, I was careful to not say anything just to capture their first reaction. They took the headphones off and they said, I had no idea. I had no idea. And you can see their, their gears are processing. What have I been talking about? And the next words are, do our legislators know this? Like, have you shown this to our politicians? Like, wait, and, and it's shocking to me because even when you use a video like that, like a medical animated abortion video, which is, it's not bloody, it's not gory, it's not meant to freak you out, but it's just accurate. People realize how cruel it is. And um, when you show pro-abortion women, like women that first proclaimed they were pro-choice or pro-abortion, they're some of the ones leading the way saying, we should make sure our girls know what this is. We should make sure politicians know, because if we're going to have a healthy debate about abortion, we have to discuss what it actually is and does. So I would start there and make sure if you're in a conversation about abortion, you are able to either show a video, which you can find at abortionprocedures.com. Um, you can describe it, you know, the first, second, and third trimester procedures that either use a chemical to starve the child, and then you deliver um, a, a dead child or surgical abortion, which will um, use devices and tools to, to remove the child, dismember the child. It's, it's pretty cruel, but you need to know about it because otherwise we're having a conversation about a word that, like you said, it's been covered in honey and it's really one of the gravest human rights abuses of our time. Yeah. You know, Allison, that, that brings to mind a, a story, kind of a memory that, that I know Herbie and I share from, from being in China and um, talking with students in China and talking about our own families. And, and this was a powerful illustration to me of, of just how messages can become ingrained um, and how, how things can be become perceived as true. So they, those students were absolutely blown away that, that both of us have three children. They couldn't imagine a home where, because they'd never seen a world where families had more than one child, and and so, um, but and and so the policy may have changed, but the hearts haven't changed, and and the and the the belief system hasn't changed. And I think what you're you know what you're pointing to is 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 a is a great reality that stands in front of us that. Uh, that the law may change, the, the, the world may change in, in structure, but, but the hearts of people are, are really the important, you know, place to engage. And, and, and that's not to say that we don't want to be active on the policy level and we don't want to press in, but, um, but this is about, this is about ultimately uh, being God's representative, being God's ambassador, that second Corinthians five kind of idea that, you know, we are ambassadors for Christ and, and we're, you know, we're given the ministry of reconciliation. And part of that is that, that we're, we're helping people to, to understand that life is valuable and important and, and, and ultimately gifted by God. And so therefore how we, how we treat life, is is ultimately a reflection of you know who we who we know God to be and 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 I think um, it's a great reminder to us as well to say that there are people you know our, our friend Karen Purvis used to say you know I love it when when uh, science catches up to God right and and so the, the idea that there are um, you know agnostic and and atheist 
folks that are that are beginning to see the reality of science, um, you know, praying that the Lord would draw them, honestly, and that that would be the pathway for them to begin a journey. Um, I think the you know really specifically, I'd like to press in um, as you know as as our time comes more to a close to say what what in the church do we need to be doing specifically as as a body of believers and a community of believers in in order to to really be an effective part of the perhaps the next chapter in in what we see you know unfolding before us in uh, in the quest to honor God and to protect life that's awesome great question you guys can probably speak to it better i was just thinking i'm like man i'm sitting here in the presence of you know you know, Dr. Rick has written orphanology and Kirby who's written, you know, from pro-life to pro, or from pro-birth to pro-life being image bearers. And that's what you guys are masters in. But for me, I think, um, thinking of your church that you belong to on a specific level, like what is my church good at? What are we ready to do? Um, depending on whether you're going to a big church, a small church, you know, for example, New Jersey, my dad's an inner city youth minister. <laughs> like that is us going down to Atlantic City, New Jersey on um, every Saturday morning. We're feeding the homeless. We're giving the gospel witness. And yes, we encounter women who are pregnant and men who are, you know, fathering many children and trying to figure that out. It's just walking alongside them, talking to them, staying in touch with them, figuring out what they need um, and trying to find places of employment, encouraging employment um, and secure housing. Uh, just walking them through some of the processes that, you know, you and I naturally have internet access, access to a phone, those sorts of things, um, making sure that they are able to utilize us to, uh, to get what they need. I'll never forget uh, when my dad installed a breathalyzer on his church van so that one of the guys could get his CD, what is it called? The CDL license, the, the truck driving license. And um, so there you have, you know, our sweet newly, you know, our homeless friend who's trying to get employment rolling into the breathalyzer of the church van. But funny enough, my dad had to do it too, just to start the car. So that probably started some questions, but you got to be brave for Christ. You got to be weird for Christ. Who cares? Um, so it, it's that if you're in a small church and you're doing a lot of, you know, outreach, if you're in one of these mega churches, um, I think realizing that there's programming and people and opportunities um, to, to just start, you know, for me, it was realizing like, Hey, they're, they're really great about promoting their small groups. I wonder if I could just do a small group for young girls to just get together over donuts and like talk about life and just say, Hey, like who's like, what's going on at school? Who's having sex? Have you ever heard of an abortion? What's going on? Oh yeah, I know. Like I've had those conversations. Um, I always wanted a big sister as the oldest of three girls. So to try and be that for them. Um, but thinking, okay, not church, like I have the whole, all the churches, but yours, what is yours waiting to do? Um, and what's your community like? Uh, what do they need from you guys? So um, I think it's a very like custom basis, but you get to dream and take the lead. And I think God wants that of us of figuring out, hey, you know what? There's this family, they do, you know, they do foster care in our church. That mom is wiped out. I can see it. Maybe we could just take their boys and like, play basketball for the morning and give her a break, a, a break, you know, just making it personal and custom, I think is going to be really God honoring. And you never know, it might lead to a bigger ministry or bigger program, but starting small, I think is the easiest and most, um, I think immediate need 
for people in the church to think about getting more more plugged in. Um, for me, uh, and I'll end here, it was also inviting my neighborhood. I moved into a neighborhood that's largely um, older, retirees, been such a sweet blessing. Um, they're so kind. They have a lot of free time. So again, when I decided I was going to help make dinner for all these girls, I thought, well, maybe some of the ladies would want to help me with that. Sent out an email, said, hey, I'm helping these girls choose life. I'm making them food. You guys want to help out? And the response was awesome. So think about doing it yourself, but also inviting others in. Um, it could start conversations for Christ because uh, one of my neighbors is a Seventh-day Adventist. And we started talking about that. And it could invite them to join. I had a sweet older woman join me at one of the meetings. And she said, Allison, I've never seen anything like this before. Like she had never sat in a parachurch ministry. And, and, and she's, I think, I think she's like, you know, she's like 65 and she was just so moved. Um, church isn't just Sunday morning. You know, it was for her like, wow, you guys are really coming alongside these girls. She had never met someone like, you know, Angela in our group who, who was boyfriend left two days after she had the baby and, and tried to get her to abort, but God's just working on her. And she's been, we've been talking a lot more about what God's up to. So I just encourage you and just start small and invite other people in. You know, I think even as we close and Allison, we're so grateful for just the words of wisdom for your passion, uh, for the way that Lord has used you in this pro-life ministry. And for many who may be looking or listening to this podcast, you may go, well, you know what? I'm, I'm not as well-spoken as Allison, or, you know, I, I, I don't have the venerability of a Dr. Rick or, or all of these heroes that you see or think about in the pro-life movement. But I, I want to encourage everyone that, that the heroes of the pro-life movement are moms and dads that go ahead and discuss these issues with their children, uh, that love their children, that mm -hmm. talk about sexuality in their home so that the first time that a child hears about human sexuality is not from their peers. It's not from a textbook. It's not at school. It's not from a culture that wants to pervert mm -hmm. it, but it's from uh, a mom and dad who want to talk about human sexuality as a gift given by God that sin has perverted, but that is a gift of God. And, and I pray that as moms and dads, that we will be a terror to sin in our child's lives, uh, but the grace and mercy, that we will echo the grace and mercy of God in the lives of our children when sin does uh, catch up with them and, and brings them to a place of hurt and to pain. And so I pray that, that as moms and dads, we would realize that, that the fight for life starts in our homes and it starts with us loving on our children, teaching our children, being consistent with our children and doing our best to model the grace and the mercy and the love and the justice of God before our kids. And so know that mm -hmm. as we defend life, as we defend the fatherless, it starts with moms and dads having open communication, open channels, and pointing our children the way that they should go. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Defender Podcast, and we hope to see you again next week. Thanks for listening to The Defender Podcast. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review The Defender Podcast to make it easier for more people to find. For more information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, visit us at lifelinechild.org. If you want to connect with me, please visit HerbieNewell.com 
Follow us at Lifeline on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. Beloved, will you allow God to use the gospel through you to impact the life of a child? Please contact us because we are here to defend the fatherless. We'll see you again next week for the Defender Podcast.